0: Welcome to the Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud podcast. Willing to Listen is a grassroots volunteer group based in South Bruce, Ontario, that is dedicated to thoroughly investigating multiple aspects of Canada's proposed deep geological repository for spent nuclear fuel. I'm Sheila Whittack and I'm so excited to have you join me as we delve into this controversial project. On today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Peter Keach, the manager of engineered barrier science at the Nuclear Waste Management Organization. We're going to go over the engineered barriers for the proposed deep geological repository. Hi, Peter. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Um, If you wouldn't mind, could you briefly introduce yourself to our listeners just so they kind of know a bit about who you are?
1: Sure. My name is uh, Peter Keach. I am a member of the NWMO, I have been for nearly 10 years now. I am the manager of engineered barrier science. uh, And that's a group that works on lots of the science-based projects of the NWMO. We support the safety assessment. We support geology, did siting by the geo team. And we also support the engineering groups. We work on projects that involve things like corrosion of the container, microbiology in the underground properties and degradation of the properties of bentonite, things like that, and and modeling, lots of modeling that we do as well.
0: Okay, awesome. And uh, like, what's your background before the NWMO? Like, what did you do before you worked there?
1: Yeah, so immediately before the NWMO, I actually worked on the projects funded by the NWMO. So I I was at Western University as a postdoc, uh, which is what you do often often after you get your PhD. Uh, And I worked on some of the safety projects that NWMO was running at Western on used fuel dissolution. So they, they really feed into the safety assessment. And so I actually came into Western and started working with little uo 2 pellets. Uh, prior to that, I did my PhD out west at Calgary. It was in electrochemistry, um, but the project was about fuel cells, um, solid oxide fuel cells. So they're ceramics that um, you use to do um, sort of the, the structure of the, of the fuel cell. And so it was a lot of work on hydrogen, kinetics, things like that. And then before that I was at Guelph and I did a master's there as well as my undergrad degree uh, in chemistry and physical chemistry.
0: So you're well-versed in corrosion.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's what I did. As soon as I came into, uh, into Western, I started working directly on the corrosion processes, but, but before that, you know, I did a lot of electrochemistry and those, the same techniques are used. You, you learn a lot about things like hydrogen, oxygen, all these little elemental, you know, molecular species that contribute so much to, you know, corrosion processes of metals and things like that. So, my whole life I've been working on, uh, my professional life anyway, working on things that are, are quite related to the work that we do now.
0: Okay, awesome. And we'll, uh, we'll dig into that a little deeper in a little bit. But just to kind of break the ice, I like to ask people. What is the best piece of advice that you've ever received?
1: I'll take that question. Um, maybe I'll take it as a sort of work-related advice because it, it goes back to what I was just talking about where I was, uh, where I was trained first was at Guelph. Uh, I was doing some, uh, some work on DDT remediation, actually, because the, the, my master's um, was, was environmental electrochemistry, looking at contaminant movement and trying to treat that but before that, I, I, as an undergrad, I was doing some work in the lab and the advisor there came to me one day and said, look for a real life problem that you can put your knowledge to. You know, there's lots of people in this department and other chemistry departments everywhere that are thinking and working very hard on things that will never come to be. He said, you know, this is a really good opportunity. You're working on something that's meaningful. It's an environmental problem. We should solve it. And then I did it my master's in, in a similar project. It was on uh, wastes that come out of uh, hog farms. So there, there are contaminants that come out of those. And the idea was to try and treat the water as it left the, the hog farm before it would go into the environment. Um, and so, you know, the same thing with the fuel cells with, with this project and, and some projects that I did at Western as well that were nuclear related. Like they're, they're real life problems that need to be solved.
0: So those are the things that I've always been interested in continue to pursue that's that's some solid advice there find a problem that you can actually do something about so just for people who maybe aren't totally familiar with the nwmo and their project could you just briefly give a description of what a deep geological repository is
1: yeah so the deep geological repository and there's there's lots of people and i i totally encourage people uh that might catch this podcast to listen to uh other folks at the nwmo that that can give really good descriptions of the whole project because it's a it's a multi-layer project that involves a lot of people in the community, um, and I'll just focus a little bit on the technical part. So the technical description is: it's a strategy for for dealing with used nuclear fuel. It would isolate the fuel deep in the underground, away from from people, and protect people in the environment from the hazards that are associated with uh, used nuclear fuel. So it's a it, that part, that is the technical description I can give. And, and you do it right into the rock, um, so it's, it's well underground. And then within that structure, you have a series of barriers that help prevent uh, any, anything from going into the repository or anything from coming out. So it's really a strategy, uh, is what it is, to prevent the hazards from the, nu- the used nuclear fuel from reaching people in the environment.
0: Obviously my understanding is nowhere near as thorough as yours, but it's a it's a very big and complicated project. It's not as simple as what the barriers are or what the rock is or what the community says. It all really has to meld together. It's it is a really large and complicated project, which is kind of why we decided to start the podcast. Cause, you know, our especially right now with COVID and everything going on, it's you can't get together with a group of people and have a conversation. And I find to try to explain on Facebook in a little post that's going to keep someone's attention about, you know, the different aspects of this, it doesn't matter how much you break it down to put it all together is so hard, you know, on a social media platform, it's incredibly difficult, um, which kind of led us down this road of podcasting, which I'm totally uncomfortable with, but I'm learning as I go.
1: Well, Well, that's why I only answered a little sliver of your question, you know, it is a very big question and it, it involves a lot of a lot of effort yeah. for the nwmo and for for people in the community to really understand what the whole project means
0: yeah for sure so what exactly are the barriers that the nwmo is planning to utilize to contain the radionuclides from the fuel
1: okay so and I, i've given a little um speaking of social media i've given a little uh, demo a video exists out there somewhere on the internet of me Describing the barriers in brief, so I encourage people to take a look at that or, or some of the other literature, but I can I can go over it in brief. You know, we, we look at it as a multi-barrier because each layer offers additional protection from, from the release of radionuclides. So again, they all go into the same goal, which is protecting people in the environment. So the first barrier, if we start on the very inside of the container, is the uh, used nuclear fuel itself. So it is, the form of it is a ceramic. Uh, uranium oxide pellet. And the reason that it is that form is because it is very insoluble. So you, you actually find the, the mineral form of uranium is as a uranium oxide for the most part. And so that means that even if water touches it, it just doesn't dissolve very much at all. Uh, you get very, very small amounts. So that's, that's what we consider our first barrier, the very insoluble form that is the used nuclear fuel. And what holds the fuel together in the reactor is a a material called zircaloy. Right next to it is cladding, we call it cladding. They're very narrow tubes that are just just sort of a little bit bigger than a a pinky finger around. And then a series of these are all welded together to make what we call the fuel bundle. And that's the form of of the fuel that goes into the nuclear reactor. And it also is the form that comes out. So there's no physical obvious change it doesn't it doesn't go from a, you know a gas or anything like that it starts as a solid in a metal and it comes out the same way looking very similar and so that's the used fuel bundle and so the zircaloy that i mentioned earlier that's a very corrosion resistant alloy it's got some really good properties for in the reactor as well which i won't get into that's a that's a very interesting thing if people are interested in in the nuclear physics but for our point of view it's a corrosion resistant alloy and it takes you know form, so it's a, it's, a, it's a metal, but it forms a very thin, passive oxide on the outside, which makes it very resistant to corroding or dissolving away. And so those are the first two, and it's, it's uh, you know, kind of easy to see that the, the form that we're getting, if you use nuclear fuel, is, is actually qu- quite good for a repository right at the beginning, uh, before you continue, continue to add the other barriers that we do. So we get into the engineered barriers now. The, the first layer that we could consider is the used fuel container and that is a mostly steel structure for, and, and steel is really important because it's, it's very convenient to work with and very weldable and very, like there's a lot of good processes in terms of fabricating for steel, so it's good that way, but it's also very strong material and very durable. Uh, but outside of that, we also have a layer of copper and that's very important for preventing the container itself from corroding. So that, uh, I, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that because that's a that's an interesting topic, but we'll continue on the description, the short description anyway. Outside of the copper uh, layer, we see a layer of bentonite clay and that's a, a very important barrier because it's a swelling material and helps to seal in the repository and helps to suppress Microbiology, it has a lot of good properties, it, it sort of buffers the pH, it does a lot of a lot of very good chemical things as well, and so that extends between the container and the host rock itself, which is the last barrier that we talk about.
0: So we are going to kind of break down the, the barriers, um, the engineered barrier specifically, and a bit about the fuel pellets. So what um, is the corrosion process like for a ceramic pellet? A lot of people seem to have the opinion that as soon as water touches a fuel pellet, the water is now contaminated. So like, what is, what is the, well, in the short form, what's the process there or the time frame that it would take for the pellets to break down?
1: So one thing that's useful to think about uh, with ceramics is, is a huge number of uh, materials are found in nature as ceramics. Uh, and that's because it's a very stable form. So, you'll hear of me- lots of metal oxides, like aluminum oxide is a form you find. There's lots of metal oxides that exist, and those are the sort of general type that is a ceramic. So, um, in, in the case, I already mentioned that the uranium oxide is the naturally occurring form of uranium, and people may know of some, one form is yellow cake, uh, another form is just UO2. And as I mentioned, it's very insoluble. So if you take uranium, you know, uranium oxide, and you put it in water, very, very, very slowly will you release tiny amounts of uranium into the water. But it would take a very long time to dissolve. You'd have to have a flowing water system. And the, the, the dissolution rate is so low that it would take thousands and thousands of years just to dissolve it up in water that's moving along. And so, you know you you can actually find uranium in in pretty much any water there's a there's a concentration of uranium in the ocean you know people may not be aware of that but some countries have actually studied extraction of uranium from the ocean. I was was going to say there's interesting work going on
0: there where they're talking about nuclear being renewable because they can get the uranium out of the ocean which is a whole (laughs) a whole other topic that's incredibly interesting and a deep hole to go down but yeah, yeah, there's a lot of work being done there with uranium. I think a lot of yeah. people don't realize either how common uranium is. Mm-hmm. I know we have a soft topic, but we have a lot of chat around here about radon and how radon is going to be a problem with the DGR. But like in my house, we have a radon detector just because I have days where I cannot get into work at the nuclear plant because I have too much radon on my person from my home. So like literally I'm too contaminated to get into a nuclear plant. And like people don't realize that, right? Unless you work there, you would never know that you have that in your house because you don't go through radon detectors.
1: Right. Yeah. And of course that comes from uranium, the natural breakdown of uranium in in the ground. But I mean, and and yeah, you're right. We are a little off topic, but the, the, the point is that, you know, there's uranium kind of everywhere, but it's an extremely, extremely low concentrations, which is why, no one's been able to commercialize extraction of uranium from seawater because right. uh, it's so tiny, tiny amounts. It's the only reason that you can say there's a lot is because there's so much water in the ocean, yeah. right, to, to, to start to consider it. But yeah, so, so you know, uranium oxide in water, it is an extremely slow process to dissolve. And and one of the analogs that we, we talk about a lot is Cigar Lake. And underground, in, in conditions, you know, not, but I mean, it's, it's an okay analog in that it's underground and there's some clay around it, but it's, it's not a swelling clay. There's no container, there's no, uh, there's a lot more water flowing. But even still, even though the conditions are not as good, near, anywhere near as good as a DGR would have it, you can't detect uranium at the surface because it just dissolves so slowly. You had to do very advanced, you know, underground characterization to, to identify these deposits. And, that, and that's just a UO2 deposit, a big one, obviously, because they're mining it now. But it just doesn't readily dissolve in water.
0: And so kind of along that line also, in, in Canada, obviously, we're dealing with Canada's um, Deep Geological Repository Plan here. We run CANDU reactors, which are unique in the world because we don't have to have enriched uranium. I don't know if you can speak to the difference between enriched and unenriched or natural uranium at the end of the fuel cycle. I know there's a lot of comparisons made sometimes between, oh, this happened in the States, but like, is it fair to compare spent can-do fuel to spent light water reactor fuel or are the properties different?
1: Well, some comparisons are fair in that, you know, they're they're still, they're mostly made up of a UO2 and it doesn't really, you know, affect the solubility, whether it's uranium-235 or uranium-238 or uranium-234, those are all there. And they all have the same approximate dissolution properties. So some of the comparisons are good, but where they, they start to fall apart is, is they put their fuel into reactors because they're enriched. They can put them in reactors for a lot more and they burn them up a lot more. Um, so their fuel is way more heat generating than ours is. It, it pre, it, it's a lot more you know, gamma radiation coming off it. So there's a, a higher hazard for above ground handling. Uh, and then there's, there's impacts in the below ground and how you have to space your fuel far apart and how the heat will dissipate into the rock. So, so there are some comparisons which are good, but you know, there are other complications that, that come in. And then there's a, there's a criticality issue that they have to, they have to manage as well, which is, is nowhere near uh, our, our program. And, and criticality means that it can, it can spontaneously undergo a nuclear reaction. And, not, and when I say spontaneously, I mean, you don't have to put it in a nuclear reactor to do it, like it, it's still not, it just doesn't right.
0: happen. The the interesting thing, too, well, I find it interesting because I'm an operator at a nuclear plant, is that can-do reactors can actually run on spent light water reactor fuel, which I mm-hmm. think is, is a statement of itself on the difference between the fuel, right? Like, a light water reactor is done with this fuel, but our reactor could still run it, mm-hmm. um, which I think also shows the difference at the end of its time in the reactor, you know? So we'll move on from ceramics, and we'll go on to the canisters. There's been a lot of chat about the canisters. I know you and I have talked about the canisters um, before while I was trying to get myself up to speed on what was going on. So we'll start with the the copper coating itself. Um, There's a lot of questioning going on in our community specifically, but I'm sure with anyone maybe who's familiar with our project, that copper coating on our canisters is three millimeters. And I believe in Sweden, they're saying five centimeters of copper. And there's a lot of questioning about why ours is thinner and implications of it being thinner and people saying that it won't be safe because it's thinner.
1: And um, I guess there's, there's, there's a couple of things here that are important. One of them, we have carried uh, containers that have much thicker outside copper layers. Uh, that was the reference, as we call it, the reference design up until about 2012. Uh, before we started exploring the copper coatings and the reason that they were like that is because of the need to manufacture them that way so if you if if they're a two-part container so you have an inner steel or in some cases they use cast iron uh, and that's sort of the strength component and then they put on the outside a copper layer just like us but they do they separately fabricate that and in order to make a huge tube, like, so we're talking about a container that's over a meter in diameter, in order to make something that big, you know, you can, there's, there's ways to do it, you extrude a tube, like, you, you know, there's lots of manufacturing strategies, or you, there's one called Pearson draw, or you can, you can make it out of flat copper, like big plates and then you roll form it, and then you, you weld it. So there's manufacturing strategies to make those things. Ones to make it sort of the best, most perfect part without a lot of afterwards working it. They require heat, obviously. And as you heat copper, it gets a little softer and weaker. So you have to make it quite thick in order for it to stay round and freestanding. So if you were to try and make a very thin copper coating, like a, like a, a thin plate of copper on the outside of one of those containers, you, you just couldn't do it. So they have to make them very large and then they have to assemble them. And it's really driven by the manufacturing requirements. What you do when you have a, a copper coating is you actually rely on all the, all the strength properties with the steel. So if you put the copper directly on the steel, it doesn't have to be a freestanding part. So you can you can make it thinner. So so those are the reasons that the parts look the way they do. And so you know we could make we, like we use electroplating and cold spray. But there's lots of ways to make copper coatings. People have heard of weld cladding and explosive cladding. There's a there's a whole raft of ways nowadays to make coatings on materials. It's it's kind of part of the way manufacturing is moving as a whole. Uh, the field is is called additive manufacturing, and it's the idea is you put exactly the right amount of material onto a part that you need.
0: It really comes down to efficiencies, basically, right? Like it's more efficient to do the cold spray versus a thicker coating that needs to be manufactured and bent and welded.
1: Yeah, well, and it's the requirement, too. So what we do and what what they do there as well is we, we try and assess how much corrosion might happen on this container through all the processes. And if you, if you look at it, you measure it, you add everything up, it's actually a very small amount of corrosion, even if you use very pessimistic assumptions about things, under, oh, well under a millimeter of damage. And, and their analysis is very similar. So there's very little corrosion they're expecting. But they're just, there's only a little bit of damage still that's expected, even if they have a very thick part. It's like if you are painting something. You could put 50 coats of paint on something, right? but it doesn't, doesn't change the color of it or anything. You know, it doesn't right. actually add value to the part.
0: And so while we're on the topic of corrosion, another topic that has come up, it comes up a lot is that the study out of Sweden, the researchers' names are not coming to my head right now, but they concluded that the copper was going to corrode a lot faster than expected and the canisters weren't going to be any good and this wasn't a good plan and we needed, it was some astronomical number for width of copper you needed. I forget what it is, but it was crazy. Um, Like a meter
1: or something. (laughs) Yeah, it was
0: insane. Like it would have been ridiculous. Can you speak to that research report a little bit and kind of explain why it, not that it's not relevant because it has done a lot to help people do further research in corrosion, but how those results aren't really applicable.
1: Yeah, so you're describing what was a very hot research area for the last decade or so where a lot of people were putting resources into trying to understand what was happening. And, and the sort of short description is they put some copper into water with no air, and you would expect copper not to do much of anything, because copper won't corrode in, without air uh, in, in those circumstances, just, just pure water. But they measured little tiny amounts of hydrogen that came off it. And so they took those very small measurements and projected them over very long periods which is which is one of the difficulties with our program in general you know we're doing experiments that in some of them are very long they can be years long but we're still projecting for safety much longer than that anyway so they took these small shortish measurements and projected them for for very long periods and and indicated huge amounts of damage Uh, and what it turns out to be because there's been a really concerted effort on these uh, experiments to do them the same we have our we have our own program running at the U of T And at canmet labs to look at these tiny amounts of hydrogen that come off and it turns out that at the very early stages yeah there's a little bit of hydrogen released but we think most of it and and this is what kind of the evidence is accumulating to show most of it is from the fabrication process so anytime you're making copper it just picks up a little bit of hydrogen and by exposing it to water for years at a time which is what we did uh, then you can see the hydrogen will come out uh, and you can kind of push it out like a little bit more if you put a bit of sulfur in there or chloride or or some of the other the other species that they used or we've used. But what you see is after not too long, after a couple of years, the, the production rate of hydrogen drops down right to where you would expect, which is to say you don't see hydrogen at all. You don't see corrosion going on at all in the pure water condition.
0: Right. So that presence of the hydrogen led them to believe that it was a corrosion product. Was there any damage to the copper or were they just basing that on the hydrogen in solution?
1: So, so the trick here is that when we, when we talk about these things, we're talking about things that would be a few nanometers. And, and to give an idea, you know, nanometers, there's a there, there's what is that 10 to the minus nine meters. So, you know, there's a million nanometers in a millimeter. So they're, they're very, very small. And, and we're talking about small measurements that after a few years, you know, they're not even one micron in depth. So you can't actually see any damage in any of these things. All you can do is you can measure hydrogen with very sensitive things and determine that, in fact, oh, there's a little bit of hydrogen. And, and, and they did some studies and, and we've done the same. We've looked to see what kind of, what kind of surface changes there might be. Uh, and they're they're below any detection limit for, for really advanced uh systems that we've tried looking at them for.
0: So it's it's just basically the hydrogen was there. It was assumed to be a corrosion product, has since been proven as a byproduct of manufacturing that comes out in solution.
1: And an artifact, yeah. More or it's, less. It's, it's generally an artifact. Yep. Um and, and it's it's good because you know, like it, as you said, it it really spurred interest in this and, and made people take a careful look at it and has pushed us in terms of development of methodology and looking for very small amounts of hydrogen, quantifying them, trying to understand what could be happening.
0: I'm pretty sure you were involved in that most recent um, research paper put out about the copper canisters, and it would be, did they say like a million years for it to corrode a millimeter?
1: It's, yeah, and it's that's that's taking the, the pessimistic assumption. If you say, even those early measurements, even if we project them for, you know, a million years then you would get only a little
0: bit of damage. So it's like um, and I, I'm not talking about
1: their first measurements they were they were taking really like their measurements were higher than that um, but they were looking at the very earliest stages. if you if you wait a couple of years and you see them dropping down even if you hold them at a, at a level and, say, and then project it forward for a million years you'd say okay there's pr- pretty much no
0: damage here. So the one millimeter of corrosion is a very conservative assumption at a million years like you'd think that Extreme. it would be even less
1: yeah
0: right so oh, we're looking
1: at it's it's yeah way under So that.
0: we're looking at like the three millimeters of pro, of copper is going to withstand a long time
1: yeah we we did <laughs> it provided there's no
0: defects and all those kind of things like a perfect yeah. copper coating
1: yeah we we did a review paper that looks at a lot of the work from you know really in depth over the last 10 years but but even well way beyond that we've got papers referenced in there that are, you know, more than 50 years old, because this this field is very old, copper corrosion research, um, right. and, and it's got, you know, hundreds of references in it. And in that paper, we're looking at like a quarter of a millimeter is what we might expect. And then if you add some conservative things in, you know, you say, oh, it's even worse, or the, the, the ground conditions are worse, then you're still only looking at just over a millimeter of damage over that million years. So so we've tried to balance, you know, adding conservative things in with realistic things, and yeah, you can sh- you can easily show that the the expected corrosion is very small on these containers. So e- whether you have fifty millimeters on the outside, like the like the Swedish container, or there's some hybrids that are maybe twenty five millimeters, and ours, our our reference value is three, you know, we we don't see um, corrosion causing failure to these containers as an issue
0: while we're on the topic of the corrosion of the canisters this this might be a this might be a loaded question but there are people who are of the opinion that because you work for the nwmo that you are going to produce the results that the nwmo wants and you're going to produce favorable results because that you your job is to work for the nwmo and i'm just um you might not want to answer this you might whatever but like what do you say to people who say that? when we're dealing with such a big project of burying nuclear waste and people basically say that, oh, they work for the NWMO, they're, they're being paid to say what they need to say and they're not basically insinuating that you're not being honest.
1: Yeah, and, and you know I understand that point. Um, and you know I'm not actually the one in the lab doing these results, like getting, getting the data. We, we work with a lot of academic uh, researchers. So at universities, professors of all sorts, you know, in, in lots of fields and they provide advice. They give us experiments that we should perform. They do tons of experiments themselves and they give us data. And, you know, they have the, they have the ability to produce the data that they produce. Um, we fund the work, but it's also co-sponsored a lot of the time by the government of Canada or other funding agencies. And it's their job to produce independent research. So, you know, we 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 co-publish with them sometimes, but there's lots of publications they do on their own. Do we sometimes argue about what data means? Of course, because you know it's new, it's it's new research. You know, we are like, what does this mean? You know, and singular experiments, you know, they need more experiments. And so a lot of our job working with them is to make sure that they're they're taking good care and generating data, but not telling them what the results are. Like that's that's their job for us. They have to tell us, you know, what their experiments show. And they have to they have to come up with independent research that helps either support or in some cases not support some of our ideas uh, and we have had you know, situations where we've, we've put, you know we've pitched ideas off academics and they tell us well that's not necessarily a good design feature for the following reasons and you know those things you know they tend not to go very far because right. they you know they've got their background and, and they're right so you know that 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 happens during these research things and you know you can find all this stuff in the literature by these academics uh they're quite proud to publish their stuff because they're 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 showing you know Mm -hmm. the the reality of what their experiments are showing
0: yeah and I, i find that comes up a lot and as a nuclear worker i get it a lot too that you know i'm only I only do this because I work at Bruce Power and I don't care about the safety of the DGR, people will say, which is ridiculous because I'm a mom of two little kids. I live in Teeswater, a few kilometers from the proposed site. I didn't think it was safe. I would not be advocating for people to learn about it. Like I live here. That doesn't make any sense. So when I hear that, you know, people say the same thing about any research that comes out about it. Well, that research was funded by the NWMO. The university is putting it out just because the NWMO told them to. You know, the conspiracy theorists are everywhere. But on that note too, there's been a lot of background um, research done on this in the past, right? Like it's not a brand new, looking at it in the last 10 years. Like internationally, oh, no. there's a ton of research, correct?
1: Oh yeah, lots and lots. Even in Canada, there's been research going back, you know, since the seventies on, on, on this concept. And copper has been part of it off and on for a long time, and it's really, you know, um, well, one of the academics we work with told me that he's he did co- experiments on copper back in the in the early eighties uh, oh, wow. for the used nuclear fuel program. Yeah, it's really impressive. He's he's really stuck with it. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's that's a, and that's kind of what I try to to get across to people. Also, it's not just because there isn't a DGR in operation for spent fuel. It doesn't mean it's a new concept. To me, it gives me a lot of reassurance knowing there's so much background research and it's not, uh, oh, hey, let's do this. Searching for two years, build it. It's decades of research into the topic, which to me is impressive. It's a crazy amount of research and I think it's it's really good from that
1: perspective. Yeah, and there's a lot of countries that have that same consensus. It is the international best practice. It is not just decided by the, the nuclear industry. There's been loads of, of input from various people, whether they be in government or, or citizens, you know, that it, it it tends to come to this consensus that the, the DGR is the appropriate solution.
0: Right. Every Everything I've looked into so far has shown that any nuclear energy country, country using nuclear energy is in the process of citing or constructing a DGR so yeah I I am a firm believer that a DGR is the best solution for waste storage do I think it should go here I don't know hopefully the boreholes will help us figure that out in the next little while so the last barrier that we'll talk about today just because we're getting a little on in time here if we could just talk about the bentonite a little bit I feel like that's a barrier that people maybe don't know a whole lot about and I maybe shouldn't have left it till last when I'm starting to try to want to wrap up. But why, why bentonite? Why is it chosen?
1: So, um, well, bentonite has a lot of applications in sort of around the world for lots of things. It's, it's a clay with the special property that it has the ability to swell when it gets wet. So it starts off dry like a, you know, like a dusty clay. And then as you get it wet, it will expand. And what that lets it do is it lets it seal against the movement of water. And that's really what we're trying to do in the, in the, in the sort of in the heart of the DGR, where the, where the used to nuclear fuel will be, is prevent water from moving. And that's why we use the rock concept as well. You want water to move extremely slowly so that uh, it can't bring anything harmful in and it can't take anything harmful away. Uh, and that's, that's the whole concept. The bentonite is very good at if there's any voids, in 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 the bentonite or in the repository in general it will swell to go into those what it does the way we've designed it so we have a, a concept of really compacting it into very very small spaces and then putting it in packing it in extremely tightly so rather than be able to swell and go everywhere it will do that a little bit as it gets wet but it will instead just build up a pressure so it puts pressure against the rock and against the container, like not, not huge pressures, but some pressure so that it will prevent, again, water from moving around. And, and while it does that, it also swells and fills the little voids within it because there's 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 gaps in the clay where water can get, but they're extremely narrow if you compact the clay and that prevents microbial growth from happening inside the bentonite. So that will help prevent Corrosion of the containers. So, so the the whole idea of bentonite is to you know, have a have a material that will s- help seal in the repository.
0: And so, I've heard also lately some people mentioning, you know, like down the road, the tunnels or the placement rooms are going to collapse because all mine tunnels collapse. But that's kind of the point too of the bentonite right, is to fill the tunnel so the tunnel yeah. doesn't collapse. All, all the
1: yeah, all the void spaces. So, so there'll be containers in the middle of these rooms. Everywhere else will have bentonite clay right up to the wall.
0: Right. So there won't be any open space left underground. No open spaces at all.
1: Yep. That's correct. So the emplacement rooms will go first in terms of sealing and then the the access tunnels that are cut between them. And then the sort of final act would be to, uh, to seal off the shafts or the accesses into it.
0: Right. And then my understanding also is there's two different, not types of bentonite clay, but forms, I guess you could say, of bentonite clay. There's the compact kind of box that the canister sits in and then there's more like a like a loose grainy fill right to kind of like fill in around
1: yeah yeah we call it, we call them two product forms so the 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 boxy one that you mentioned so what you what you do the difference is really like you start with the same material and to make to make it into big blocks you add a bit of water and you kind of granulate it it's good. it's a standard manufacturing thing you sort of mix it with water until it starts to get clingy and then you put it into uh, what we call an isostatic press, which means pressure comes from all directions equally. And you squish it down into a block shape. And then you take it out and you can, you can actually shape it to whatever shape you want. Uh, and, and people have seen the pictures of our, of our DGR will see that you know, we actually carve out in the blocks sections for the containers. So they sort of fit in. It kind of looks like a bathtub. And you can put the container inside. Uh, so that's how you make the block. You add water and you granulate it and you compact it with pressure. The other thing that we do to make the granular bentonite is it's a very low water bentonite, and you run it through these two big rollers, and so it will still stick together if you put it under enough pressure. Uh, you get these little cracker-looking things, but they're very brittle. So when you add water, it gives you it, it, it makes it so it's not very brittle. It's a it's a strong material with some flex to it. Uh, but if you ta- if you don't do the water, it's a very brittle material, but then you sort of, you take that material, that's these wafer like things, you, you, you grind them up a little bit. So it's, it's got the same sort of size distribution as a limestone, limestone screening, which people may know from, you know, making patio stone installations and things, mm-hmm. it packs in really tightly so you can pack it right down. And so there's very little void space in there. So you have these two product forms, one that's a block. Which you can actually move around. It's very convenient for lifting the container and everything at the same time. And then the other one that packs right in into a very small space uh, and fills the entire void space as well.
0: Okay, awesome. Yeah, I, th- I think every single one of the ba- of the barriers could have its own episode talking about <laughs> what they are because it's so it's such an in-depth, complicated thing trying to break it all down. So just kind of a last wrap it up kind of thing. If you were talking to somebody who maybe hasn't heard of, or is unsure about this project, what kind of, a, what would advice would you give them?
1: Well, I mean, it's the same advice about almost anything that you're not sure of, take the time to learn, you know, look at the resources that are there, talk to people that have knowledge of it, or can help find um, resources for you. There, there's, there's a lot to it. It's not something simple it's a decision that has to be made on, on many levels, right? It's not just, it's not just, you know, is this a, a great technical solution, which is what I work on. And I, I do think it is a great technical solution, but that's not the only reason that we're talking, you know, but do find out about the technical aspects there, you know, there's, there's stuff that you can learn. There's, there's all sorts of resources and, and take the time to, to get in, involved in the process is what I would suggest. But in the end, you know, the NWMO, you know, we need a, we, we need a partnership with a, with a willing host community and informed decision-making is, is one of the most important parts of that.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate Thank you your time to talk to me. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of willing to listen South Bruce Proud. I look forward to further investigating Canada's plan for spent nuclear fuel along with all of you. Thanks so much for joining me, and remember, we don't have to agree on anything to be kind to one another.